just to be like, yeah. hey, plug it and pump it. I don't know why I did that. I'm sorry. That's absolutely. That's going to be the cold open for this. Just so you know. <laughs> the rest is just noise. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Just Noise. I'm your host, Andrew Mitchell. We've got something a little bit different for you today. The conversation we're about to have was actually recorded about a month ago and was supposed to form a follow-up to our main episode coming out in April. But it felt particularly prescient for some news which has come out in the UK this past week, so we wanted to get it out there for you. Uh, for some background, a new law has been proposed by the UK Conservative government, giving police tougher powers to crack down on protesters. There are a lot of aspects to this bill, many of which are concerning, but importantly for this podcast, it includes new vague language to impose noise limits on protests. The government has said that this is needed to counter, quote, highly disruptive tactics used by some protesters that cause a disproportionate impact on the surrounding communities. Now, I and other noise professionals have some concerns about how these limits could work in practice and whether there's any sort of justification for saying that these protests cause a disproportionate impact but I think the more important discussion to have is around what making noise means to a protest itself and what some of the consequences of a law like this might be. Well, last month I spoke with sociologist and soundscape researcher Etta Bild about a concept called sonic appropriation. And we discussed what it means for marginalized communities and protesters to be able to gain control over their sonic environment. We also discussed some of our own personal experiences, including mine, protesting here in London and what sound in those environments really means um, for the cohesiveness of a protest. Uh, as I said, the main episode which this was meant to follow is an interview with Etta and her colleague Daniel Steele about their music kiosk project, uh, which was really fascinating. So make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to keep an ear out for our longer conversation there. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this surprisingly timely conversation that I had with Etta about sonic appropriation. Etta, thanks so much for joining me again. Um, what I wanted to do is just, there is something that you said in our main episode our main conversation that i hadn't really heard about before and i kind of wanted to just dive back into it a bit more and mm -hmm. explore it more so you mentioned this concept of um acoustic appropriation so right. could you just tell me sort of what how you conceive of it and and how like how you apply it to the the music kiosk stuff that we were talking about before right so um like i warned you i, I the, the concept is uh, from the sounds of it i i went back a little bit to the literature and checked it, uh, checked it. I think, um, in, in sort of like sociology or ethnography, it's actually sonic, sonic appropriation. However, yeah. the idea behind it stays the same. It's about the fact that when you're, um, of, of people who, who, um, appropriate to take over their spaces, not just physically, but also acoustically or sonically, if you wish. Um, so this is something that comes a lot from a literature on, you know, revolutions, on uh, people who have been, communities who have been minoritized, who have been vulnerable, who 
reappropriate their spaces again, not just physically, but also uh, sonically by manifesting their presence in the space. Uh, so that's something that you will see a lot of various protests in the street. Um, for example, there were some protests in, uh, I want to say Argentina anyway, somewhere in South America, where they were using pots and pans, that they were really mm-hmm. banging pots and pans together. And that's a that seems to be, that has become a, a canonic form of protest. And that is a way of acoustically appropriating because there you're really making your presence known. You're really saying, you don't want us in the space. You don't want us here, but here we are loud and clear. Um, and you have to listen to what we're saying. Um, so that was a that was something that is very interesting for me, uh, at, just personally, from how different people who are usually not necessarily welcome in public spaces or you know in in, in spaces that are meant to be shared, how they occupy their spaces also acoustically. That's something that's very interesting for me, also from a perspective of like feminist studies and. Um, you know, protests that had taken place in, especially in Latin America, but throughout Europe and everywhere in the world, um, for women taking over the public spaces that traditionally are not necessarily spaces where they feel safe or where they feel welcome. I, when I went to the BLM protests in London, mm-hmm. um, something I found really fascinating was the the difference that came over the crowd as soon as any chants started. Mm. Right, like it was sort of an it felt a bit unfocused at the start, but then as soon as like a chant could make its way through the crowd, the whole crowd just sort of created this, you know, more of the group solidarity sort of thing when, when the sound was able to, to spread through it, which is, yeah, something I hadn't really experienced for before outside of, I suppose, music because yeah. music, you get a similar sort of thing, but that was, yeah. When you go to a concert, yeah. you yeah. get, you would get that feeling when you're going to, especially a popular culture or whatever, a popular concert or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I had the same feeling here. Um, although I have to admit that sometimes um, it was a bit weird for me to chant about, you know, black people being murdered when I'm not yeah. one. So it was a bit like, mm, okay, I'll just do it out of, because, you know, it's about amplifying the voices. But um, I mean, I do, I have to, like on a, on a personal note, I do hate the term empowerment. And I do hate the term because it feels this idea like I'm empowering you. So yeah. it's still me. It's yeah. all about me. Yeah. Um, and I don't like this idea of like making their voices heard and whatever. But at the end of the day, it's this. It's about yeah. creating. So I think acoustic appropriation is also a, a concept that relates to the fact that um, people don't feel like those spaces belong to them. So they have to. It's, it's an act of protest. It's an act of even acoustic violence, if you wish to take it, you know, to take advantage of it and to, like, have, you know, people uh, metaphorically clutch their pearls because, look, Mm -hmm. what is happening. You're hearing, uh, you know, protests. You're hearing people playing their their savage music and and stuff like that. It's the same when you, I'm sure the the first people in, you know, when you had the, when you have the festivals in Elephant and Castle of, like, Caribbean music and stuff like that. I'm sure the first white people there were like, oh, the music of the savages. So it's, it's a it's about like normalizing um, others in public spaces. So is it is it sort of specifically focused to on like marginalized or displaced communities? Um, not necessarily, but uh, that is where the bulk of the research is done. So okay. you can even because the sonic appropriation, the idea of making yourself heard, is mm-hmm. a concept is a you know, just like exaggerating is, is a, is a form of, um, you know, is a form of protest. 
is a form mm. of hear me out. So you can even think of like teenagers, uh, you know, playing music out loud or doing things that are not normally accepted. You know, mm. public spaces are spaces of sharing. Technically, in supposedly egalitarian societies, we all have the same right to those spaces and we should not disturb anyone else who is there because that's mm. where is a space where everyone's, you know, everyone can feel comfortable. So then there shouldn't be a community that is louder than another. Um, that's also why you have, you know, uh, noise, you have regulations related to community noise and stuff like that, because that's the whole point behind it, right? We have to cohabitate, we have to live together. Uh, so no one should be louder than the other. But this has mm -hmm. indeed been a form of, um, you know, people who have been traditionally marginalized to manifest their presence to say you cannot ignore us anymore or you know we also exist and we also have the right uh for this um so this was sort of the the background um on which i built uh, or i i looked at the at, at the um the way in which music kiosk was used in this small public square in montreal uh, because again we come all from a tradition of you know, you should coexist with other people in the public space. You should not be loud. And a lot of the people who engaged with the device would not be the type of teenagers who would, for example, uh, play music on their boombox back in the day, uh, or, you know, who would play music loudly on their, on their cell phones or whatever. So these are people that have this sense of responsibility towards others. Um, so do you think it was, it was specifically the music kiosk that it was this thing that sort of did it have something to do with like a um, uh, an encouragement from what they might have seen as like an authority figure that it was placed there and regulated and said you can use this to to exert sonic control over your space as opposed I, to them just setting up with their own boombox which they might not think is like is allowed I suppose yeah I think it was there was a matter there was a, a small matter of cognitive dissonance there so they knew they could because we had told them they were allowed to. But then yeah. again, you know, we're also, uh, we were also young researchers and there was like our project in a small square. So there's also this aspect of like, is it really okay? And we're like, yeah, yeah. we have permission, but is it really okay? So they yeah. wanted to, to one extent, but then again, it's not something that they're really comfortably engaged in because that was not, um, that's why we also collected information on introversion and extroversion. Uh, that was also something that uh, was okay. part of it because... You know, it's also a matter of personality. Are these would these people be comfortable sharing? Um, again, because music is also part of an identity. So when you acoustically appropriate your space, which is again something that is not part of our normal norms of appropriate behavior in a public space, it means you want to represent your identity. It means you want to, for lack of a better term, shout out your identity for everyone to hear. So then even being encouraged to play the music, then you also are like, you're just in a moment of like, oh, but what, you know, what is okay? Like, because these are people that would still want to adhere to those norms. So then mm. they, they, they scramble in their mind and subsequently their phones or their iPods, because at that time iPods are still a thing, um, you know, to see what is the most, um, you know, harmless music they could play. What's something that would not... Uh, disrupt, you know, what, what's something that would not bring in an element that would be considered extraneous or that would be considered problematic or that would give a wrong impression of this person's identity. Yeah. So I think the moving a little bit away from music chaos to sort of what you've been saying about um, 
the sort of the the control that was imposed on you know making sure that one one group of people isn't louder than the other a thing that i um found really interesting i was reading like a history of how noise ordinances were mm-hmm. created in the in the u.s mm-hmm. um and if i remember correctly one of the like one of the first ones were um like wealthy residents i think in boston um in new york city if i'm not mistaken it might, it might yeah because of the harbor sense. yeah exactly complaining right. about like the noise from the harbor and that sort of stuff um which then kicked off like the whole history of noise ordinances and noise pollution legislation um do you think that so because i come from like a noise control background Mm -hmm. where we we go to those legislations a lot Mm -hmm. should we be thinking a lot more about sort of the history of how that stuff was imposed certainly i mean that's why there's an entire trend now in uh in policy studies to look at what is equitable what is you know People of color, people who are from minoritized communities, um, I mean, it, it, it is this, you know, trifecta of like social, like social class, economic class, then you sprinkle in some race on top of it, and you got yourself communities that are the ones who are more likely to be subject to uh, inequitable policies. Like it is mm-hmm. known that for, for decades, it was always, you know, black communities or poor communities who were living in areas that were that eventually were deemed to be inhabitable, uninhabitable. Uh, for example, in the United States, those were the people that would be living close to the highways. Those would be people that yep. would be living close to the airports. So we definitely, we cannot pretend that policies, noise control policies and other types of practices are, we can't pretend that they have nothing to do with with the socioeconomic complexities of the societies which in which they are embedded. For sure, I mean, there was an entire history of poor people being loud and ratchety. Like it's, you know, they're, mm-hmm. the, I think it was, I, I think it was Goethe, or um, I, I'm, I'm really blanking out on the name of the, of the poet, but he was saying that, well, of course, he was a white man. I'm, I'm sorry, but it was a white <laughs> man, was a white, rich, wealthy man, had nothing better to do than to engage in, I will, because you told me I'm allowed to, in intellectual masturbation. Um, and he was, um, he was complaining about the fact that one needs quietness to be able mm-hmm. to think. One needs quietness to be able to produce, you know, like works of deep intellect and whatnot. And these poor people, these goddamn poor people with their loud, smelly, whatever, inappropriate, amoral lives, they're the ones who are stopping our development from moving forward. So that is something that has been the, the bottom line and the underlying idea behind a lot of policies. Um, and especially in the 20th century, that's always the underlying thing. You know, yep. there's always a, a, an aspect of you build these complaints on like, the people who can afford to be quiet are the people who don't really engage in activities that are loud, meaning they don't engage in industrial uh, activities, meaning they don't do things that are, uh, you know, loud because they have the money to do something else. And you also notice, for example, in Montreal, you know, the quietest neighborhoods are the neighborhoods that are the wealthiest. They're the ones that have the most parks. They're the ones that have the most, you know, the lowest density in buildings. Everything, you know, anything from noise regulations per se, but also to urban planning, to urban development, all of these are intermingled along socioeconomic lines. And they they get this sort of feedback loop of the the 
those wealthier communities are already designed and able to be quieter. Right. But then also they're the ones who tend to get the legislation to protect the quietness of those spaces. So they get this feedback loop of these two things, ignoring and, the communities that had a highway built through them. And, and they're the ones who tend to complain. Yeah. Right? Because they're the ones who have the right to complain because it's usually quiet. So they hear something, ah, what is that? It's noise. Uh, but yeah, other communities would not complain also because of fear of repercussion. Like you have to call the police, um, you know, and, and again, I mean, again, the reality of, of the United States is that, um, you know, you call the police, they're underrepresented. They're, uh, I mean, the communities that would call, it would be black communities. It would be Hispanic communities. It would be communities that do not have a particularly comfortable history of interacting with, uh, with the police. I suppose that's a so when when we first started when you first mentioned acoustic appropriation sonic appropriation and exerting control over the the sound I was I was thinking about it more sort of the way that you first presented it of making sound and exerting sound to shape the sonic environment but it oh. does it is also about like just straight up controlling the sound environment where you know we've we've done some research on um the socioeconomic factors behind noise complaints um, mm -hmm. specifically here in London was our research and it goes contrary to what noise control people would think where the wealthier neighborhoods have more noise complaints even though they are actually the quieter places but it's right. because those are the neighborhoods that are that feel comfortable exerting control and complaining and, and saying no we this should be quieter so yeah, that's, and yeah. yeah and also where emergence is a bigger issue I mean, now to go back to more to more acoustic concepts, right? You have the idea of like the background noise or the you know usual yeah. levels are quite low. So then, when there is an emergence, when there is something that really pops up, then you're yeah. like, "What is happening? You got to fix this." Whereas if the background noise itself is just the hum of highway and industrial work and just busy life, um, you don't notice the new things coming in over top of it. No, much. and and I think one of the things that um, I think these, the, I mean, we've, we've, we know about the, you know, various effects of noise over health. Um, but we also have this idea of like people who say, well, I'm used to this. Like mm -hmm. I grew up in a city, you know, I grew up in New York city. I don't care about the noise of sirens and I don't care about yeah. those things. Yeah. You don't care, <laughs> but your body cares. So yeah. there's also the aspect of, uh, of, of people accepting it. And sometimes I mean, I think nowadays for our generation, maybe maybe less so, but um, there's this idea of like pride and having built, having grown in a having grown up in a city, and I I don't care about yeah. the noise. It's not something that I'm. Uh, it's something that I'm totally used to as a as a as a thing of resilience to show that you know we're people of the 21st century. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean that there is no long term effects on our body. You know, the physiology of our body is very much affected, even though we don't cognitively recognize it. So there's are again aspects that you know uh, when it comes to noise we have been tolerant of of things and we've accepted things saying that that's part of urban living that's part of everyday stuff whatevs but it's not necessarily something that we have to accept you know uh, and not and I'm not talking here just in terms of like the levels that are dangerous for us but just the everyday annoyances those ones still have an effect on us. Yeah, and it's the the type of sound as well. You know, I I've grown up and lived my whole life in a city, and I don't yeah. really want it to be quiet. You know, like the countryside. Mm -hmm. I value countryside quietness, but I don't necessarily. That's not why I live in a city. But there's a difference 
between you know harmful annoying sound and just the pleasant vibrant sound right exactly right. I definitely i definitely agree and it's um i mean when uh, when i when i give this presentation on like race gender and whatnot i usually give the example from the wire i don't know if you've seen it the show um one of the I know bigger of it, com- but i haven't seen it Oh, mine. My, my, everyone should, everyone interested in, in, in understanding sociology should definitely watch The Wire. But anyway, there, yeah. was, an, uh, there was a scene in there in which a, a young teenage, a, a teenager from uh, New York, from, um, sorry, the city where, from Baltimore, there you go. Um, he, is, uh, he is in danger of being murdered, so he's taken to his grandmother's or something who lives some, out back in the, in the countryside. And he starts hearing birds and he starts, he's super spooked because he doesn't know mm. what the hell those sounds are. <laughs> And his grandma's like, oh, these are birds. It's like, what the hell? Where's the cars? Where's the shootings? Where's the, you know, where are the things that I'm used to? So it, it's anyway a shock for, um, yeah. but that's why I am here. We go on the other aspect of policies. It's not about quieting. Yep. It's not about making everything. It's not about making the city a quiet space. It's not about making the city a silent disco. Um, it's about the I mean, fact that there are still issues that need to be addressed. And there is very much a socioeconomic and racial dimension to those things. And to bring that back to the the sonic appropriation, I think that seems like it's a really important part is allowing the people who actually live in a space to have their say in how they think that space should sound. Definitely. But um, to bring that at an even, can you say more meta level? I don't know <laughs> if meta is quantifiable, but anyway, um, at a more abstract level, um, yeah. It's also about creating awareness on the rights mm-hmm. that you have. So it's about, I think when it comes to noise policies, there's so much focus on your responsibilities, like yeah. what you can't do, what you're not allowed to do, what you'll be reprimanded for. But it's also mm-hmm. about understanding the rights that you have as a citizen or actually in the case of the States, as a non-citizen, as a human, let's put it like that, <laughs> as a person. You know, you have rights to have... Yeah, a, shockingly, a, non-citizens have ears as well. Uh, Who would have guessed? Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> you know, no science, no no studies have come out on that. But, um, you know, it's just about understanding that there are rights that you have as a person to how a space sounds like. And then you can claim those rights. So it's also about uh, informing the public about the fact that, hey, you don't actually have to put up with all of this. You can actually... You know, you can, you're actually entitled to a life that's a little bit less noisy or less problematic. You don't have to live by a highway and, you know, assume that living by a, I don't know, 10 lane highway is actually part of everyday life. That's not necessarily the case. Yep. Um, so it's, I think it's, um, that's why a lot of our work or a lot of the work that I uh, like to do is also this, um, you know, creating like the outreach is just as important as creating um, acknowledgement and awareness among policymakers, among people who actually intervene in the city, among professionals of the built environment and whatnot. Public awareness is just as important. Outreach is just as important because people have to go to their representatives and to be like, hey, this is not OK. We need a change. Yeah. I think the only time the only way in which there could be more efficient not just policy development but also implementation of policies is when there is a combination of bottom up and top down when it comes to sound and like you said this has to be the result also of a participatory approach not just of planners and designers and uh, policymakers and whatever acousticians saying we know what's good for you hold up 
the people also know what is what is good for them, but they need to also be. Um, it's not a, even teaching; it's just about unlocking that aspect of talking about sound. We go back to the same shit that you read in every introduction and every paper on soundscape. We don't have the vocabulary to talk about sound. Well, let's develop it. Yep. I so. I think I think that's a a good place for us to leave it um, with a message of you know regain control over your sonic spaces and learn about how to talk about sound. Yeah. I think that's a good place to leave it. Thanks so much for, for coming back on and talking about some sonic appropriation. <laughs> My pleasure. The rest is just noise. You can find episodes of The Rest is Just Noise on all of your usual podcast apps. And on our website at justnoisepod.com. We're also on Twitter as at justnoisepod. The Rest is Just Noise is supported by the UK Acoustics Network.